0: This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from Go Abundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for Go Abundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the show. I'm excited about today's episode. But before I get into it, make sure you subscribe, like, comment, give us a rating and review. It just helps us grow the podcast. So this guy, Kiala Kanai, I found him a while ago. We were just talking about that. He's a growth facilitator, a coach, a blogger, a marketer. Uh, He's the CEO founder of Full Stack Marketer. He has scaled his business from zero to seven figures in four months, to 20 million in his first year, and is now right now doing about $2 million a month in business through his, uh, through, you know, his multiple enterprises. So Kiala, man, great to have you. Thanks for being on. Thanks thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's talk about affiliate marketing. That's kind of your, your go-to just for the audience, for me, even like, can you describe that? I think I get the gist of it, but what, how do you make money or how does your business make money as an affiliate marketer? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So affiliate marketing is basically where I got my start. That was my, my, you know, um, Quote unquote rise to stardom, I guess, originally. Uh, and the long and short of it is that affiliate marketing is basically just the process of, um, you know, earning commissions by sending some other existing business uh, more customers who purchase their products and services. So when I was an early stage entrepreneur, so for many years, I was kind of a entrepreneur, if that makes sense, meaning, you know, it, One, I had the dream of having my own business, being in control of my own destiny, uh, struggled like so many people do. And uh, when I discovered affiliate marketing, it took a lot... For me, it took a lot of the weight off my shoulders in the sense that instead of having to come up with some sort of product or service to offer the marketplace, I could just partner with a company that already had a proven product or service that people were buying. It was getting traction. It was obviously valuable. And then I could let the business... Deal with all the complexities of business, hiring, firing, inventory, uh, you know, customer hassles, all that drama. And I could just focus on marketing, advertising, and sales and uh, get paid every time I referred them a customer. And for me, the kind of the epiphany, the aha moment, if you will, uh, that I had uh, kind of discovering this was I realized that if I could just focus on the advertising component the marketing component um and some other business had to deal with all the rest then eventually i would master the skill set that i felt at the time was the most valuable skill set that i could have in business because so many businesses struggle because they have a hard time acquiring customers mm. so if i could figure out how to acquire customers and just specialize in that eventually i could have any business that i wanted um uh, and so, you know, that's basically where I made my first few million dollars in sales. Um, my first million dollars in, in commissions was uh, just selling other people's products and earning commissions doing so. Typically in affiliate marketing, uh, not to say that this is the only way that it's done, but for me, I like partnering b- with businesses uh, where there's a high ticket offer um, mm-hmm. because the commissions are obviously more substantial. And when you factor in the cost of advertising, uh, the cost of advertising are increasing. They're always going to be increasing, uh, and uh, in order to kind of liquidate the cost of advertising, and back get back to profit. The higher the price point, the faster that you liquidate those costs and get into profit. So,
0: when you say high ticket, well, first can you define that? Is that over two thousand, over five thousand? What's kind of high ticket when you say that?
1: Great question, because uh, I I I hear people throw that term around a lot, and we don't always have the same meaning for it. Sure. Um, at minimum, I'm looking for something where I can earn a thousand dollar commission or more. And your commission is typically what percentage of the sale? Is it 10, 20, 30% of the sale to be an affiliate? Depends on the offer. Um, typically, if, I, if I'm selling like a product or a service, like a, a, a physical product or service, yeah. uh, because there's a substantial fulfillment cost that can come along with that, then you're looking typically around maybe the 20 to 30% uh, arena. If I'm selling like an info product or coaching or something like that, then you can be higher into like the 50 percentile uh, at times. And I've seen affiliate programs, I mean, I've sold offers where they were paying us 70% commissions uh, as well. So it really just depends. Now, do you, do you
0: discriminate at all on product or service? Like, do you stay in a lane or if you're an affiliate marketer, is the lane essentially more of a, almost like a buy box? Like, doesn't matter what it is. It's just more, does it fit the criteria of a thousand dollars commission and so on and so forth? Like, is it a blender and then like a a online course and then, you know, like a camera, like, you know, like what is, what does it look like? What do you, what do you actually market?
1: Yeah. So the most scalable markets are like in the affiliate world, we call it, or really in the digital marketing world, we call it like the big three. So it's um, money and finance, uh, health and wellness, love and relationships, because everybody basically wants to get laid, get paid and live forever. Uh, And so in those, those are like the markets that I would stay that I would normally stay inside of. I eventually, through the process of this, I kind of realized that I liked the financial markets most um, because those are things that I like reading about. I like studying. I like watching YouTube videos about. So, I mean, I made substantial money selling stuff in the health and wellness space, but it wasn't necessarily as inspiring for me as talking to people about like uh, the opportunities of making money. Um, and so over my first few years, I realized that that was like my sweet spot. That's the stuff that, like, if I was writing an email to my list, I didn't have to like sit around and try to like look up blog articles and come up with ideas. I could just spit stuff off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh and so I eventually started to narrow in on just that lane. Uh but originally, yeah. I mean, I, I was uh I've definitely sold dating products, I've definitely sold health and wellness products, but the financial world is really what excites me the most. I want to get
0: to the scaling here, but I'm just there's a couple things in here I want to be I want to make sure for me, my own brain. So when you say uh, uh money and finance products, are these uh, what what's the, the difference, if there is any, between a physical product versus what I'm picturing right now, which is more of like a you know a course, a coaching, uh, a mastermind, maybe something like that. Like, are there physical products in money and finance that you would sell, or is it mostly uh, on the coaching and and consulting side?
1: Yeah, in that arena, it's mostly the information space. So the only physical product I ever sold was really in the uh, health and wellness space, sure. uh, which was a, a water ionizer, um, a high a, f- a fairly highly priced water ionizer. Um, <laughs> And we, we blew that thing up so much so that the company was like trying to change its compensation plans, its commission wow. structure, because they they were having a hard time keeping up with how much like facilitating the inventory for how quickly that we were selling the product. Um, but other than that, it's basically been in the information space. So how
0: do you, how do you, so you have a list. I, I was going to ask you about paid versus organic and, and and just using a list versus paid ads and all of that stuff. I'm, I'm wondering about the flow. Like, so do and just thinking about it from a user standpoint, three years ago or whatever, when you're, or four years ago, when you're in the throes of this, do I pull up my my phone on Facebook? And do I see an ad with you talking about this information product for this person? And then I see another ad with you as the influencer talking about this information product. And then I get an email because I'm on your list about another information product. And then a week later, a different information. Like, what does that look like for
1: the end user? That is a great question. Uh, so, No, I wasn't always in all of the ads. Um, It really depends on what offer I was promoting. Sometimes I would just be able to take other people's ads and and run it. That's a little bit more difficult to do today in uh, platforms like Facebook um, because they use facial recognition. So they don't want multiple advertisers using the same ad. Mm. Uh, But in the back when I started out, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, But once I put you on a list... So if, I, if I'm running an ad in, let's say, the health and wellness space, and you join my list, uh, and you opt into a list based on that, then yeah. you, I know that your interest is in the health and wellness space. Now, typically, I'm going to have some sort of a primary offer. So something that I'm looking to sell that is like the number one thing that I'm focused on. But if you don't buy that thing inside of 60 to 90 days, then I'm going to segment you off into a promotional list where I uh, there's a couple of things that I might do. So back then what I used to do is I would take people through kind of a 60 to 90 day sequence inside of um, that market that they came through. And then at the end of that I would try to run a, some sort of a quiz. So in that quiz, I would ask like what else might you be interested in? <clears throat> and depending depending on what boxes they check would dictate what would dictate what other lists they went on to and what other promotions that they might see. Mm-hmm. Uh and so that way I kind of get a buy-in from them about what you know what uh, what are their, some of their other interests like a good example of this is and a lot of people don't know this um you know digital marketer uh I'm sure you've heard of digital marketer Ryan Dice you know all, all sure. these guys um Roland Fraser um my my uh anyway so they had a survivor a survival brand uh for a while and when they were trying to figure out uh what that brand uh what other opportunities existed inside of that brand they pulled their list and the other thing that they found that was interesting was uh, a lot of the list was interested in DIY makeup um so doing their own makeovers so they ended up having a spin-off business that was in that arena which would normally to us seem completely unrelated but because of their testing that's what they found so uh Similar to that, right? So I'm bringing in people. uh, I know exactly what they're interested in based on what they opted in for. And then on somewhere on the back end, if they haven't bought my primary offer, I'm going to segment them off using some sort of a quiz. Of course, if they don't answer the quiz, then I'm just going to kind of keep them inside of a campaign that's related to the thing that they originally opted in for. But if they'll take the quiz and go through it, then I can figure out what else they might be interested in. And I'm going to promote other, what I call like back-end offers or supplementary offers. At the end of the day, when we're, Generating leads online, there's a cost to generating that lead. And so, you know, my job as the affiliate is to make sure that I uh, monetize that lead effectively. Mm. You know,
0: that makes perfect sense. All right. Today, are you still in this space? Are you still affiliate marketing? Have you pivoted? What are you doing right now?
1: Yeah. So we still do a pretty substantial amount of earnings every year through affiliate marketing. Um, I have a couple hundred thousand dollars a month of recurring income there. Uh, we do about maybe five to seven million dollars a year, um, through affiliate marketing, which is basically, but today it's a little, it looks a little bit different. So I have a pretty substantially larger audience, uh, a substantially larger list. And normally, you know, these days I go and broker the deal with whoever it is that I want to, you know, kind of do it. We, we, we consider it more of a JV. Mm-hmm. Um, so, somebody else has a product or service or something that they can offer to my audience that's going to be valuable that my audience is looking for. And then I'll go to them and kind of broker the deal. Uh, typically, we're going to take the lion's share of the commissions because I know that when I run a promotion to my list, I'm going to usually do a million plus in about a week of promotion. Sure. Uh, so, you know, I can, it gives me a little bit stronger positioning. And, and posturing to broker the deal. So we're typically do about 60 to 70% of the, of the revenue that comes out of there. Uh, and we're just more selective about who we work with. Makes sense. Um, but it does bring us a substantial income every year. Excellent.
0: And you spend, if I heard right, you spend over a million dollars a month in ads. And are you doing that
1: at a loss initially for initial customer acquisition? Oh, this is a great question. Don't even get me started. <laughs> and Jamie, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but... <clears throat> Uh, currently we're not spending about a million dollars a month at one point we were spending about thirty to forty thousand dollars a day on YouTube ads uh, we're not spending necessarily that much at this moment um, but yes the long and the short of it is so when it comes to scaling in ad campaign or an offer uh, one of my strategies is something I call negative acquisition and when you look at um, a lot of the kind of big boys and girls in the space, the ones that are really scaling, really pushing, you know, the the boundaries, they're all doing the same thing. It's all negative acquisition. So what do I mean by negative acquisition? Well, what it means is that I'm losing money on customer acquisition. So a lot of times people tend to think that like, hey, if I'm going to advertise, let's say I'm going to spend $100 today on ads, I want to make $200 back. Sure. <clears throat> Great, that works. I mean, it can work. Uh, you know, I, I I lived and played in that space for quite some time. Um, But if you really want to get into scale, like really, really scaling, um, then you got to be willing to basically lose money acquiring a customer, lose money on the front and make all the money on the back end. So uh, I started doing this originally as an affiliate. Like once I I started to work with businesses that had more high ticket offers, um, and at some point in my evolution, I was willing to get on the phone and sell those high ticket offers myself. So I would generate customers for that business, and then I would do a, a converse a call, uh, a one to one call with the customer that I generated, and I would sell the high ticket offer on behalf of the business and earn the commission. Once I pl- started playing with those numbers. Um, and I was able to earn those higher ticket commissions. I realized right away that, like you know, I'm being way too conservative on my advertising. And if I really want to scale, then you know I've got to, I've got to go upside down on the front. So, um, the best business for me to talk about would be like our primary business today. So we scaled. We we launched in November of 2016 originally with our 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 existing like courses and coaching program. Yeah. And by March of 2017. We were doing seven figures a month. And uh, we had our front end product was $99. Back end product uh, at the time was 10K. Now, because I had run so many different types of offers through a funnel like that, where there was a low ticket front end, but a top tier back end, I was able to kind of figure out roughly where my numbers would land. And uh, what I did is, you know, the first couple of months that we were running traffic in, Uh, I was watching all the back end sales revenue, trying to get a you know a feel for okay, so within that first 30 to 60 days, what is my average front-end customer going to be worth? Mm -hmm. Once I kind of had that dialed, so we we came up with about a thousand dollars. So within about sixty days of acquiring a customer, they would spend on average, somebody who spent a hundred dollars with us on average would spend a thousand dollars with us, 10x on the back end. Now, then I wanted to scale. Things up fairly quickly, and at the time I didn't have a big team. I didn't have a lot of the operations that we have today. These sorts of things, so I was willing to go basically upside down fifty percent. So I would spend five hundred dollars to acquire a hundred dollar buyer, and know that on the back end I would make about twice that. So two x ROAS, I'd make twice that within about thirty to sixty days, once my once our sales team was able to get on the phone with that client. So. At the end of the day, you know, the business that's going to win the marketplace is the business that's willing to spend the most to acquire a customer, period. Amazon. Yeah.
0: Right. At the end of the day, wasn't that Amazon's model at one point, they just, they would spend, they would, they were losing. It was just a, it was purely, you know, losing on the front end on the customer acquisition side, I should say. Right. And then they would, they would make it up with just what they've done now. I mean, you know, obviously biggest
1: company. Only, in the world. only for about 12 years. They only lost money for about 12 years straight. Is that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, they were upside down. They're they're probably the best example of a company that was willing to go way into the negative um, on customer acquisition. But their goal was, and Jeff Bezos used to talk about this, right? Is that like their goal was to have a credit card on file from every household across North America, which, you know, today they do. Uh, I've yet to meet somebody who's like, yeah, I don't have an Amazon account. So the longer the runway, the bigger the aircraft. And they had a 12-year runway, you know?
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. It's uh it's kind of the Gary Vee jab jab hook kind of thing, right? Like jab jab right hook, the same idea. You know, keep keep the, the longer you can go before truly monetizing, the more the back end monetization will be, right? So somebody trying to quit their job. Well, I've done this six months and I want to now monetize. It's like if you have to, I guess go for it, but you're gonna make this versus if you wait three years before you truly monetize. Add value, add value, add value. So when yeah. you say 50%, so if you simple numbers, if you have a uh, a a hundred dollar product, you're willing to spend one hundred and fifty, essentially, correct, to acquire that customer, or two hundred dollars to acquire that customer.
1: No, um, at, that that time, at that time, at that time, five x. So when I say it's fifty percent of the overall customer value at that time was what I was willing to spend on customer acquisition. A oh, thousand, got it. Oh, so five
0: hundred dollars yeah. you're willing to spend, and then correct. and then you would have a flow. I'm assuming. So all right, so you're spending that's just on ads. That's just on upfront marketing, but not on Correct. sales commission. So then you'd have a sales commission that comes out of that. And the margin is your profit, essentially, after the ad spend sales commission. So they they eat what they kill. So you're not spending anything
1: unless they close somebody. Correct. And then you've got the, the back end. Interesting. Yeah. So that'd be like the gross margin, basically the gross profit in the business. Now it turns out that like when you actually scale a company and you have a bunch of like people that work for you and uh, you know you have fulfillment and all these things, turns out that fifty percent might not necessarily be the healthiest number. So today we spent we stay more inside of like thirty five percent of our uh, so our, our our budget on a monthly basis is thirty five percent marketing, twenty five percent labor, and fifteen percent G and A. Okay, so about 25%
0: profit margin overall is what you're targeting, which makes sense. The yep. the um scaling that fast because you know, my mind is going into, uh, you know, I got to imagine or I have to imagine that what you're doing now at scale is you're you've got a system dialed in where you know your customer acquisition you know your uh customer lifetime value or so at least value within 60 days or 90 days right after acquiring them. You know what you need to spend, you know what your profit margin is, but in the middle of that in order to realize that that um that uh that thousand dollar you know 60 day customer value or whatever there's got to be really good fulfillment and service in the middle of that so it makes me wonder going from zero to a million dollars a month in four months did you have that locked in that's fast man did you have it locked in where you've got fulfillment set staff set like everything was infrastructure built we're ready to go at a million dollars a month I don't think you did but <laughs> I'll, I'll key up the question
1: that way and see what uh see what you take from it Way to keep me honest on here, Jamie. So, um, no, absolutely not. Was I prepared for that? Uh, in no way, shape, or form. So, you know, one of my, you know, quote-unquote mistakes, you know, we might call it, um, is early on in my career, I came from the world of affiliate marketing, and I came from like digital marketing, sales, and advertising. So, all we ever talk about in that arena, and this is kind of one of my beefs with that arena today, is that all we ever talk about is customer acquisition, you know, mm-hmm. lead generation, uh, sales, like monetizing people, basically. Um, very, all, Almost never do we talk about actually fulfilling on all the promises we make in order to make that sale, okay? Yeah. So um, coming from that arena, now prior to this, I had done like little coaching programs. I had launched a, a, f- a couple of courses of my own, these sorts of things. And I'd always fulfilled, but I never fulfilled at scale like I was about to in this run of it, right? Yeah. So my head was always like in the marketing and advertising space. And for me, customer acquisition is just, it's just a game. Like, And I love playing that game. Mm. And so when we started scaling... And you know, doing seven figures a month relatively quickly, I did not have... The whole fulfillment team was this guy. You're looking at him. That was, that was the entire fulfillment staff. Oh, shit. So no. I was doing all the coaching, doing all the content in the courses, setting up all the, like, the members area myself, uh, that sort of thing. Obviously, that wasn't necessarily um, super sustainable. And I had one girl who was uh, our support desk. And she was uh, handling all of our support tickets. We scaled up so fast that our uh, sales team was booked out three to four weeks in advance, so their calendars were full out to about a month. And they're taking they're taking eight to ten calls a day. And my support desk, which was again one person at the time, our average. So I didn't even know how to measure this. I figured this out along the way, but eventually, when I figured this out, I go and ask. I'm like, well, what's our average like? Ticket resolution time, it was nine days. Wow. I mean, so you sent in a support ticket, oh, and nine days later, we solved your problem. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying like it was not the best customer experience. Right. Um, and for me, that was a complete, completely new problem to try to solve. Like, how do I even figure this out? Uh, it, it had never been a question that I'd asked myself. You know, the first question was like, can we get to a million a month? And then it turns out that you can. Uh, But in order to keep doing it, you got to actually fulfill on all the promises you make. Um, So thankfully, we were able to find a a, a decent operator at the time who came in, um, immediately started focusing on our support issues. Uh, We were able to scale up the support team. um, Not necessarily in the most intelligent way back then. uh, But that's some of the issues that come along with scaling is that, you know, there's a lot of, um, when when you scale that fast, it's hard to make very, sound decisions, especially if that's your first time scaling that quickly. Um, so we brought on a support team. We were able to turn that around. Eventually I brought on other trainers so that the content wasn't all just my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and come about 20, so that's 2017, 2018 uh, me and my partner uh, kind of basically decided to go our own separate ways for lots of reasons. I eventually buy him out after kind of a long legal battle. Uh, I buy them out at the end of 2018. And one of the first things that I did is I talked to my team that I saw. I was getting rid of the old regime, bringing in a new regime. And one of the first things I did is talk to my team and say like, Hey, listen, um, we just went really fast. I mean, we're doing 20 million a year. Um, We did 20 million our first year, a little over 20 million year two, where I buy out my partner. And and, um, I realized that that was not sustainable. So mm-hmm. I end up talking to my team and I'm like, listen, we, we went really fast, but I, I want to go far, not necessarily fast. Mm-hmm. And So uh, we're going to scale this thing back a bit. And we're going to really focus on uh, building a better infrastructure and customer support and customer satisfaction and customer results. We're going to focus on those things that help a business stand the test of time. And so 2019, we started to really scale back. I scaled back to about half of what we were currently doing. Um, the team went down to about a third of the size that it was previously. And we were doing about half the revenue. It's uh, such a
0: catch-22, though. So I'm just thinking about this. Like, what could you have done differently? I mean, obviously, you have the benefit of hindsight. But I'm thinking through that. Look, I'm a guy, I think I told you before we started recording, like, I was a, a, a an insurance exec for years and years. I mean, before this, you were a barista, I think, right? Like, we had... Very different yes. lives before getting into the space. And you're way, 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 way further ahead by miles than where I am starting in this space a little bit. But I have an info product, a course, an Ascension model into a mastermind. And we're, we're just, you know, it's sort of been playing with it. And now we're starting to get a little more serious, kind of what you were talking about. But what my inclination is, is to say, okay, here's what I think I need. Like, you know, I believe in what we can do, but here's what I think I need. And I want to go out and hire all this stuff, right? I want to go out and pay for that now and build the structure and all of that to to go to the next level. But if it doesn't work, it's a lot of people that I brought on that, you know, it ain't working. So what's how do you the, the obvious answer feels like have the infrastructure in place? But I think I've also heard you say, you know, at some point you just started hiring people to fill holes. So if you were to start again, or give me advice for that matter, what do you do? Do you have the belief in the plan to get to a million a month and staff for it or structure it? Or is there, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you do? How
1: do you how do you how do you not make the mistake that you made? These are great questions. Oh my god, Jamie. Okay, so, <laughs> um, I love talking about this stuff. I know you do. I can so tell. the uh, you know my first time around, I didn't have any investor capital. We're bootstrapping this thing. Yeah, and, and uh, without that capital to start with, uh, so you're gonna notice that there's there's really like two types of businesses that are on the come up. There's businesses with no capital and businesses with no capital have to be more marketing and sales focused, right? Because they need to drive revenue in order to keep the business alive. Now, if you're a business that has capital to start, then you're typically going to start by being more product focused. Okay. So uh, a lot of SaaS companies are this way. They go out, they raise a ton of, uh, they raise a ton of capital and they're really, really focused on the user experience of their platform. They've got to create a phenomenal product if they want to be able to compete in the marketplace. Okay. Um, and they let the product, the, the product and the user experience is their main selling point. Whereas if you're bootstrapping this thing, you got to drive revenue in fairly quickly in order to stay alive. So you're going to have, you're going to have these conflicting, you know, uh, interests. Okay. Um, because I was bootstrapping, I built my biz, my first, my my Primary business today. I built it from the ground up. So what that means is uh, I hired the troops before I hired the generals. Right. Mm-hmm. So when I came when I when I started to scale up our advertising, I knew I was going to need salespeople. I hired all the salespeople. I trained all the salespeople. I wrote the scripts for all the salespeople. I walked them through all the mock calls. I explained what all of our products were. And then I was the manager of the salespeople, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I hired support, I hired, you know, I I did all the interviews. I hired the support person. I picked what like the support ticket platform was going to be and all these things. And then I, you know, quote unquote, and this is using the term loosely, managed this this the support person, right? Um, and so you start building, you know, from the ground up, from the bottom up. And then eventually, you know, there was too many salespeople. So eventually I had to hire a sales manager. Uh, eventually I couldn't keep my eyes on all the accounting. So I hired a, and this is using this term very loosely as well, I hired a CFO um, that my my partner really liked at the time. And then, you know, once support was way out of our control, then eventually I had a support manager. Then eventually I had an operations person who helped build out the whole support channel. And so that's kind of like the bottom up approach, right? Uh, Which again, comes along with bootstrapping. Yeah. Today, my businesses that I like start, or that I consult with, like where I take a position on the board or something like that, and I and I work with them. We focus on more of a top-down approach. Today, I have money that I can deploy uh, into a business, and so we take a more top-down approach. Meaning, the first thing that I'm going to look for typically is an operator who can help the vision come to life and has experience you know building something similar to what I'm building. And then I go look for that operator and I put them in the in that seat first. Now that person their job then is basically marketing, sales and fulfillment. They're in all three channels. And they've got to go build the team now that's going to eventually take over marketing, the team that's going to take over sales, the team that's going to take over fulfillment. And I'm working through them to build out the team. Now, if they come with experience, they already know the hiring process. They already know, they probably already know people that they've worked with in the past that they can bring on board or they can recruit from some other company that they can incentivize to come over. They have some of the systems and processes down, the project management, the project management software down. Like they've, they come equipped to do the job. Hmm. Right. And then that's a much steadier way to grow is from that top-down approach. It's like hiring the person that's already done the thing that you're trying to get done and let them bring all of the processes, the team and all that sorts of stuff. Uh, And that keeps me mostly out of the day-to-day. So- Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, man. I was gonna say,
0: what if they don't come with experience? What if you can't afford the experience?
1: Then you're the experience, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're the person. So, and this also comes with the evolution of like entrepreneurship, I think. Like I think uh, I see this a lot, a lot of com- a lot of people that will ask me for like help or consulting, I'll go look at their business and one of the first mistakes that they're making is one of the first mistakes I made, where they hire for um you know, promise a future potential. Mm. So they have a need that exists in their business and they go, "Oh, I know somebody that I think would be great for this job." You know, my cousin Joe, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, I'm, I'm going to give him a job, put him in this position. I, he's got a great personality. I know I can trust him. Right. Yeah. And they put somebody in a position that they've never done before. And they kind of hope that the person's going to do a good job. Uh, 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 if a business is growing fairly quickly, there's a lot of delegation by abdication, meaning that like, here's this thing that I don't want to have to deal with anymore. So I'm going to hire somebody to go do it. And then I'm just going to get it off my plate, but we don't actually spend enough time training them up on how to do the thing. Three months later, we find out that they suck at doing the thing. And now we've got to take it back anyway and get rid of that person. That's delegation by abdication. They just abdicate to somebody. So, you know, today uh, I'm a bit more mature maybe not in my day-to-day life but in business I'm a bit more mature and uh I one of our themes on my team and I talk about this a lot especially like we're hiring all the time one of the things I talk about is proof of past performance mm-hmm. proof of past performance versus promise of future potential so it's not that we're completely closed off to hiring somebody with potential but typically if we're going to bring some if we're going to put somebody in a position based on potential they're going to be it's going to be from within. We're promoting from within. And we're very, very cautious about this because a lot of businesses, they promote from within. They And so if you take somebody and you move them one notch up on the ladder and they're playing a role that they've never played before, what happens is everybody that was once under them is technically now, by by default, they're one notch up the ladder as well. They're trying to fill that gap. And what happens is you create this crack in your infrastructure, right? These cracks in the business. So we're very, very cautious about promoting from within and making sure that we backfill the position before we make the promotion. Primarily though, in a growth phase, a scale phase of the business, where we're really scaling up, we're looking for proof of past performance. So I'm not going to bring you on the team unless you can show me that you have actually done the thing that I'm hiring you to do uh before and our hiring processes are long how do they do
0: that yeah sorry they walk through that how do you how do you get proof is it just references what does that look like
1: uh, yeah resumes references uh, a pretty you know pretty long arduous hiring process mm-hmm. so depending on who we're hiring so like if I'm hiring a salesperson today in our in our team our sales hiring process is I I want to say seven steps long um, so there's at least five interviews along the way and seven steps in the process. And along that process, we also have assignments. So we'll do like a culture assignment, uh, where we basically in, in the, for the sales team, we assign, uh, them a book and we ask them to do a, not like a book report, but to write us a one page, a one page or less essay on what their takeaways were from the book and how are they going to implement what they learned? um and and I could go into details about this we don't actually give them the full title of the book sure. we, we we there's there's some games that are being played right to make yeah. sure that they can think on their feet that they're a problem solver that they have their own uh you know that they, they have their own um that they that they're, they're self motivated these sorts of things yeah. when we're hiring for more of a director level or manager level or c suite level type of person then Uh, the process might not necessarily be like seven or eight steps, but we're going out and we're finding like a recruiting firm who is going to help us recruit this, these people, they're going to do all of the kind of first phase interviews to weed out all of the people that aren't a good fit. Um, we'll go, we'll write a very clear roles and responsibilities document in advance. We also come up with, uh, what we call, so we call it a mission and RR document. So mission and roles and responsibilities. So there'll be a mission of what this role is to accomplish in its first 12 months. So as an example, add a million dollars of revenue to the bottom line of the business through, you know, social media channels through, you know, uh, expanding our, our reach on social media. That might. I'm just thinking of something off the top of my head. Then there's going to be key objectives that go along with that. Those key objectives would be like you know to get us up and running on uh you know TikTok or something, uh to improve our Instagram following by you know three hundred thousand followers or whatever it might be. Okay, so there's all these key objectives that go under that. That's what they need to accomplish inside of that first year in order for their role to be considered a success. We'll take that to a recruiting firm and say this is what we're looking for, and specifically what we want is somebody who's already done all of this or at least 80% of this. And then they're going to go out and they're going to like the recruiting firms that we would prefer today are somebody that's going to they're somebody that's going to go out and they're going to actually headhunt people that exist in some other company that are already doing the thing inside of another business. Typically your best person to hire is not a free agent, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you were if you're looking at if if I'm building a Super Bowl team, all the free agents available are basically not good enough to have already been on a team. So how are they going to win me a Super Bowl? Yeah. Right. All the best players are currently under contract somewhere and I've got to go negotiate, uh, you know, a way to bring them over to my team. Okay. So typically your best people are already playing the role in some, in one of your competitors' businesses. You got to go find that person, incentivize them and bring them over uh, and recruit. Um, so when we're looking for like a C level or director level, sometimes the manager level, we're looking for somebody that's already playing the role in another business, uh, and typically we can tell from that business's, you know, numbers and what they've accomplished, we can tell that they're doing a good job in their role. Uh, and then of course we still take them through a hiring process. We still ask lots of questions. We still, you know, review their resumes. We still call out to references and these sorts of things. We still have, you know, personality tests. Uh, that we do, we do an SDI. Um, we still have, uh, we also do assessments in these roles. Like right now, I'm hiring a sales manager and I have a sales manager assessment where I break down basically our entire sales process in a video. And I tell them, listen, I want to know what numbers would you want to, if you were running the team, what numbers would you want to look at um, to measure both the effectiveness of the process and the effectiveness of the people that are running the process? Because uh, good data. If you're looking at good data, you have data that tells you whether or not the process is working and then whether or not the people inside the process are working. And you got to really have both. Okay. And so I, I, one of the assessments is give me all the KPIs that you would want to look at in order to measure this. And I want to see like, can they look at a sales process and instantly start to turn that into, you know, numbers that can be measured so that they can figure out how effective it is being. Um, and if they've got a good management experience, they know how to do that. If they don't have good management experience, like they can be a great people leader, but if they can't make decisions based on data, then I really don't give a shit about their feelings and their gut, right? Right. I want somebody that can like, uh, one, be good with people, but can also interpret the happenings in the business into numbers that are measurable so that we can make educated decisions. Man, how how involved are you specifically in all of this?
0: Like, are you designing these processes? Like at the, at the hiring level, I mean, like, are you designing? Are you involved? Or does it depend on the level of the job? Like, how how involved are you uh, as like a visionary, the
1: CEO, the person at the top of the chain here? Today, I'm hardly involved. I mean, we were just talking before we got on this podcast that I was just in Hawaii for three weeks, right. you know, um, dealing with kind of like a family emergency. Um, while in Hawaii. I probably got on a handful of meetings in three weeks. Um, So today I'm not very involved in my primary business at all. uh, Other than being the face of it. Sure. Right? Sure. Um, But on the come up, I had to really learn how to be, you know, a a good operator too. uh, Before I had good operators. Um, And really in order for me to figure out what a good operator looked like, I had to be one first. Right, And now I have one that's like better than me at this stuff. Um, But early on, yeah, man, I'm I'm looking at one of the biggest mistakes, a big mistake that I see a lot of businesses make as well, going back to what, what your original question was, is that like whenever there's a problem in the business, they think that it's a people problem. They think that they have to hire somebody to fix the problem. But more often than not, I find that it's a process problem. So there is... And b- because I come from the world of marketing where we try to automate as many things as we can possibly automate, you know, I look at like, okay, wait, what's the process? Cause I can probably automate a lot of this. And so really, um, it was diving in and look, looking early on as an operator, looking at why, what is causing this issue? I don't want to put a band aid on this. I don't want to figure out like, you know, um, how to solve the symptom. I want to figure out how to solve the problem so how do we be more proactive about this and usually there's some sort of a breakage in a process somewhere that can proactively solve the problem but a lot of early stage entrepreneurs i i see are like they're fixing symptoms not problems if that makes sense that makes that makes complete
0: sense i'm curious how how all of this relates and and maybe it's maybe you don't see a distinction at all but i feel like in the last few years you know the business the business uh, you know, building a business has morphed into building a personal brand in so many ways right like the brand becomes the business uh, i feel uh, are these principles cuz you become i feel like in the last few years i mean you become a big brand i look at the brad lees of the world right there in vegas right we had him on the mm-hmm. podcast another guy who just you know decided you know what it makes sense for me to build my brand which essentially is building a business are there any differences when the brand is the business is there anything that you
1: do differently when the brand is the business or is it the same process i don't know when you, can you clarify the question for me a little bit? Like when you yeah, say yeah. the brand is the business, you mean like the person? Like you, yeah. Like from what I gather, maybe I'm wrong. It wasn't like
0: Kiala at the very beginning, right? And now it's very much, I feel like it's, you know, like you are out in front more so because social media has become such a big force, right? TikTok and everything else, and, you know, is blowing up. So. So I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong. I feel like the, and maybe tell me I'm wrong. Like, now nah, you're completely screwed in the head here. That's fine. But I feel like, you know, you you and a lot of people have had to, or have chosen to maybe um, say, okay, yeah, I've got the business that I built, but now in order for this business, and I'm going to use Brad Lee. Do you know Brad or no? Do you know? Of yeah, I know Brad. So yeah. Lightspeed, right? I think of Lightspeed. Yeah. Like I, I asked him on the podcast, like, dude, what do you do? Like no one knows. All of a sudden you're this big brand but I don't know what the business is that you had, right? But he built Lightspeed to a sizable company. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, what's that? I said, oh, yeah, he built his right, sizable right. company, yeah. And then he becomes this brand, this entrepreneur brand, which obviously helps promote Lightspeed. It helps grow the business, this other business, this core business that he started. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm observing it wrong. I believe this is the first time we've ever talked, but I feel like it's similar for you. Like you built the business and now I see you. Not, you know, the business was the business and now I see you out in front. So I guess that's what I'm wondering, like, as you started to pivot, or maybe you, you know, it's just been an organic thing, building the brand, the face, like, you know, Kiala as this guy, what is he? He's, he's motivational. He's inspiring. I think I've used some words, right? Like coach, growth facilitator, blogger, market, like these bigger terms of who you are as you're building that, what's the difference, if any, between you building your brand, you being out in front as this guy that just people attract into. And then, oh yeah, by the way, Here's how I can help you. Here's the monetization of that
1: between building the business that you're monetizing and building you. Is there a difference? Yeah, man. I think there's a pretty considerable difference maybe. Um, and this is just speaking from like my experience and kind of yeah. like watching watching some of the people, like the figureheads in the space. Um, early on in my business, I really was not at all focused on my personal brand. I mean, here, here's an example. Um, you know, Ty Lopez? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Kind of everybody knows Ty Lopez, right. right? Here in my garage, right here in my I garage. Knowledge, right? Um, that whole video that took off on, yeah. YouTube, on YouTube, right? Yeah. And and, and it took off on Facebook too. Um, I'm fairly certain that I have more views of my YouTube ads than he does, but less people know who I am. Ty had operators in his business. Um, and he really he really was not plugged into his business at all. So he just focused on building his brand. And when that video blew up, he capitalized on it in so many ways. Like he turned that into so many different podcast interviews and all these different things that he did that kind of like made him more well known, right Like more established. Um, whereas I've had more views on my ads. I have, I have an ad with over 100 million views and another ad with over 80 million views that, that wow. build that built uh, our original success. Um so that's 180 million views there. And that's not not necessarily 180 million unique people, but sure. that's 180 million views. And I at the time did not have any time to do any personal branding, take on any speaking engagements, go and do any podcast because I was operating the business. Right. And so uh and I was focused on that. Uh now today, because the business runs fairly smoothly on a day-to-day basis without me, we've got a and by the way, I've just, I got to give a shout out to my team because I just have the most epic fucking team ever. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's like 20 something of us. And for us to be doing the kind of numbers that we're doing at 20 something people, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but now that I've got a great team, now I can go focus on my personal brand a bit. And that's why you're starting to see me show up more on Instagram. I'm doing more YouTube videos and I'm, I'm being more um, uh, proactive about this. And I think this is my, my experience. Like you go look at, you go, you've probably seen Hormozy, uh, sure. Alex and Layla. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. They've been blowing up on social media for like basically the last 18 months. Right. Mm-hmm. Alex came out with a book, the book smashed, a great book, hundred million dollar offers or whatever okay. it's called. Yeah. yeah. A great book. I mean, I read it. It was one of the few books I'll, I'll put it this way. I'm just going to give a plug for Alex. Right. Uh, one of the, very, very few books that I bought and I'm listening to it on audio and I'm actually slowing it down to one X speed. Oh like, I know what you mean by that. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, he, he just said some good shit right there. I gotta slow this down and, and hear I it know again. Exactly
0: what you mean. <laughs> right, well, go, go, go back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Speed, Whereas so.
1: like most You're... of my audio books I'm listening to on like two and a half X speed. Yep. Yep. But anyway, yeah. Yep. Um great content. That great content blew up their social brand, and now they're like they're getting tons of traction on social. They're speaking on all these stages and all these things. But at the end of the day, what made that possible? They did something that was noteworthy to begin with. Right, that's what they did. Right, yeah. um, and that's the secret. Well, like why is Brad Lee so popular? Well, he did something that was noteworthy to begin with. Right. Uh, why am I focused on my personal brand today? Well, I did. I've already done something that's noteworthy, and now I'm sharing how I did it. Right. So there's a lot of people like. In the coaching, consulting, expert space, uh, you know, even some of the SaaS space that like want to be the face of their business, um, and are like focused on their social uh, and you know YouTube and all these different things for like client attraction. You know what's attractive to a client? Go get some fucking results. That's what's attractive to a client. You know what I mean? Um, and so, I think that in the early stages, it's about doing something that's noteworthy. And then once you have something that's noteworthy and is running and is you know, uh drive in basically on its own, then you can go talk about this noteworthy thing that you did, and all of the attraction kind of just comes along with it as a byproduct if that makes sense. Uh, it makes complete sense, man. No,
0: that's that's incredible. actually that's a great that's a great, great outline for exactly what personal brand is. man, I appreciate that., uh, we're coming up on time. I did want to ask you this just on the I mean, there's a lot of different places I could have gone. I wrote a bunch of notes, but in the interest of time, uh, just for those out there that are looking at paid uh, promotion, paid advertising, Today, YouTube, Facebook,
1: like, I don't know, are you focused in any specific area? Do you see more opportunity in any specific area? Wow, that's a good question. Um, So today, so we actually blew up on YouTube originally, and probably about, I mean, at one point, 100% of our ad spend was on YouTube, spending about 30 to 40k a day at one point. Um, Today, Google has changed so many different things about their ad platform Um, that honestly... A lot of their changes seem a bit like a money grab. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, the vast majority of our ad spend is on Facebook, so I'm not I'm not necessarily married to like any platform. I'm just like, where are my customers at? Where's my ideal customer at? And where am I going to get the best uh, ROAS? And typically, your best ROAS, by the way, is going to come based on the platform that you're advertising on. Is like a funnel that's congruent with the platform, um, meaning that there's there's a type of behavior. That somebody exhibits when they're on Facebook versus the type of behavior that they're going to exhibit when they're on YouTube versus the type of behavior that they're going to exhibit on TikTok, and so building a sales funnel that takes into account what is this user, you know, what is how what is the user behavior on the platform, and then creating a funnel that is congruent with that. So let me give you an example of what please. I mean by that. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah. So <clears throat> our primary customer acquisition vehicle is an automated webinar. Now, mm-hmm. um, everybody used to say. You know, some pretty popular names used to say even that like the you got to have a just in time option, meaning like they hit the page and they can watch the webinar right now. OK, um, and everybody's like the just in time is crushing it. Just in time didn't crush it for us at all mm. on Facebook. Right. And then just in time didn't even crush it for us on YouTube either. But what did crush it is watch yesterday's replay right now. Didn't work on Facebook, worked on YouTube. Why would it work on YouTube? Well, if somebody's on a platform where they're watching videos and then they click to a page and they can like, oh, let me watch this other video right now. They're more likely to actually sit there and watch an entire, you know, my pitch was two hours, right? So they're more likely to sit there and watch the presentation and choose to watch a video right now versus the person on Facebook who's standing in line at DMV, just checking out what their friends are up to. They're not going to go watch. And if they can choose to watch the video right now, they don't even have the attention span to give to it. Right. right. So by testing these things, we figured out, hey, this works really well on this platform, does not work at all on this platform. And that's what I mean about like creating something that's specific to the platform that the traffic is coming off of. Secondly, uh, the second answer to your question was, you know, um, like what opportunities do I see right now? We're really working on getting dialed in on TikTok. Um, I'm very, very rarely a early adopter of things. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> people might fault me for that. Don't really care. Early adopters tend to take all the arrows, get slaughtered, you know. They leave yeah. the they leave the baddie battlefield bloody. Um so I'm more a fan of like let everybody else go test that thing out, figure it out, and then once it's proven and it's working and it's going to stand the test of time, then yeah, then I'll I'll go jump in on it and, and crush it. TikTok though right now basically the lowest CPA that we're seeing of anything else that exists. So the lowest customer acquisition cost of any other platform currently. Um, now, very different user behavior. I mean, they're Isn't sitting there watching, true. you know, people do dance videos and weird shit. I mean, it's less of that today than it was three no, years ago, no, no. But, but it's yeah. still quite a bit of that. A twerking, a twerking, yeah. Exactly, like, how, what kind of ad do you produce on TikTok in order to generate a click, and then what sort of a funnel do you produce in order to get that click to actually convert into something that's worthwhile? These sorts of things. But as far as like the biggest opportunity, I think the most under undercapitalized on opportunity in the online in the uh, advertising space right now is TikTok. I'm curious on the funnel
0: side, just real quick, and then we'll we'll wrap here. But what is the um well, like, so it I makes sense what you said long form webinar, long form platform, YouTube. But if you're on TikTok, it's 30 seconds, four seconds, really, for that matter, that people have attention span. So, what is the, what is the, I mean, you're, you're testing it, but just what are some ideas? So, is it not long form webinar? Is it more like a mini webinar or a five minute, five minute video? Or, or what, what are some things that are, that are effective, do you think, or that you're testing on, if you don't
1: mind sharing on the TikTok side? Yeah. So, if you look at all my ads that have crushed it for us, right? All of my ads are content driven ads uh and this came from when i was uh when we first launched on youtube one of the things that i looked at is like okay well how do i stand out on this platform everybody's doing the ads of like hey what's up you know are you struggling with you know da 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 well i'm so and so and here's what i've accomplished and click here go over to the next page and register for my webinar or get my free book or whatever and i was like well what if i just made my ads valuable like what if right inside my advertisement i gave content that was like useful to the to the person that is my ideal customer, right? Most of your listeners, they wouldn't be impressed by my ads, but my ideal customer is right. So and everybody at the time told me, no, you got to keep your videos down to like one to two minutes. Like says who? Says what? Like what is that based on? Well based on what we're seeing. Okay, well I'm gonna go test this. So my my video uh, like my 100 million views video, the first one that we got, you know, 100 million views on, that was a 10 minute video. Wow. And it's an ad, right? But there's content in it. And so, and that's just that strategy has crushed it for us on both YouTube and Facebook. And I love creating an ad where somebody can get value from the ad, even if they don't go and click and opt in or whatever. Like it just, it's going to create a better, um, you know, emotional experience around. There's a a better affinity for my brand if you get content just from the ad by itself. Not possible on TikTok. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's not necessarily impossible, but I'm not doing a 10 minute video on TikTok. You know what I mean? Like maybe one minute, okay, um, that I can get away with. So now how do we condense down that content so much so that we can try to give some sort of an epiphany or an aha moment in 30, 30 seconds to a minute and still get a qualified click? Because a good ad is not just focused on getting clicks. It's focused on like you know getting a qualified click. So you've got to get, you've got to repel the people that are not going to be a good fit, attract the people that are going to be a good fit, and you know, create some sort of piece of content that's going to do that for you so that you're getting quality clicks out of the gate rather than just as many clicks as I can get. Right. Um, figuring out how to do that on TikTok right now, very difficult. At least so far. And we've only been at this, you know, we've been talking about this for like a couple of months, maybe. So, and then putting the content on the first page of the funnel, the content that would originally go in the ad, Now the content is on the first page of the funnel. And from there, then we're asking them to click over and, you know, take the next step. Whereas on all of our previous platforms where the content was in the ad, they click to a page and the page line them up with the next step of the funnel to opt in or whatever. So now we're having to kind of like make this multi-step thing that we didn't do before. Interesting. Very interesting.
0: And in the interest of time, I'll leave it there, man. Wow. This is, I, I, wow. Okay. Where can people reach out? Where can people learn more? Where can people uh, find you? I should say uh, at this point where you want to direct folks.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, best place to find me right now, like the places I'm going to be most active is either on YouTube or Instagram. Like I don't even have a personal website right now. It's it's under construction, so if people want to find me and like get more valuable content, the places that I talk about scaling a business most um, and marketing and advertising most is Instagram or YouTube. So on Instagram, it's Keala Kanai. Uh, it's only 10 letters, but it's got 40 vowels in it. So it can be very confusing for most people. <laughs> so it's K-E-A-L-A-K-A-N-A-E. And then same on, on YouTube. Just search Keala Kanai. You'll find the channel. Uh, but that's the best place to like stay connected with me and kind of get content. I don't really pitch much stuff on there at all. Um, these platforms really exist for me to grow like the, the personal brand, the brand that you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not necess- it's not a pitch fest. Um, It's really like oh, content and value driven. Ton of value,
0: man. Like I said, I told you at the jump, we, uh, I found you on clubhouse eons ago when that was a thing. And um. Uh, it was it was just chock full. I remember that whole discussion you were leading. It It was just chock full of info. And then I went into your funnel without you knowing it. I right? essentially going into uh, your YouTube channel, follow you on IG and the, your stuff is really, really informative. Even at, you were doing a challenge, like a weekend challenge. And I was honestly more looking at like, how is he doing it? What is, but it's like two days or three days, like eight hours, a bunch of, and you're going to come out of it with, you know, actionable. I mean, it was no joke, you know, like everything that you do is value focused, which was why it was Honestly, such a blessing that you agreed to come on this podcast. I've been a fan for a while. So I really appreciate you being here and just, man, opening up so much. So thanks for that.
1: Hey, man, th- those are some of the most flattering compliments I've ever gotten, bro. I Appreciate that. <laughs>
0: there you go. There you go. I'll leave my mark with that. It's a great way to end it. So Calum, man, I appreciate you being on.
1: Thanks for having me, Jamie.
0: That's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out goabundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that one to five million dollar range, or our champion division at 5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast and you'll learn all about what this whole Go abundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon.